You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is uh, Charles Cook, your host of the Immigration Hour, uh, the most listened to podcast on immigration in the known universe. Is that right, David? That's it. That, that's I think correct. That, I think that's correct. And I got David Beer with us from the Cato Institute. Uh, David is a policy analyst, uh, joined uh, Cato last year, and has been making a remarkable contribution there. David, welcome to the show again. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. No, it's great. Uh, you guys have been doing great work over there. Uh, my favorite thing, though, recently was your tweet uh, in response to the 60 Minutes hit piece on H-1Bs. <laughs> I thought that was such a great, short, uh, potent tweet. Thank you very much about that. I mean, yeah, let's talk uh, about that I, first. I, I mean, the program lacked uh, the nuance that you'd expect from uh, the mainstream media. Well, the, ma- the mainstream media, uh, you know, I-, I thought that was a very typical 60-minute hit piece on a program somebody didn't like. Yeah, I mean, it really, really reflected a very narrow focus on, you know, and, and it's, it's one of those things that you could do to pretty much any aspect of the economy. If you look at individual cases, uh, you're always going to find somebody who uh, falls through the cracks or there's, uh, you know, uh, instances where something isn't working out exactly the way that you want. But you got to look at the big picture, and nowhere in that entire program did they ever talk about the big picture or what is actually going on in unemployment in this industry and, you know, when do employers in general uh, use this program as opposed to, uh, you know, just looking at these specific cases, which are obviously, um, you know, you feel for the people who lost their jobs. Nobody, Nobody wants to lose their jobs. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, you have to look at the big picture. You know what was interesting to me about uh, that the group of people they had sitting uh, and on in the, in the uh, let's call it the stadium seating that they had arranged, not a whole lot of 24-year-old recent college grads there were there. No, no there wasn't. Um, what you really are seeing in these specific instances where people have been displaced by H-1Bs is you're seeing H-1Bs coming in, really getting the entry-level wage to do jobs that people who are receiving um, wages and and compensation for, uh, you know, very experienced workers, but they were doing jobs that entry-level people could be doing. And so there was a mismatch between the skill level of the person occupying the job and the person coming in from abroad. And so you end up having employers looking at the situation and saying, well, we could replace these people with people who are uh, getting paid the entry-level wage uh, to do this entry-level job. And so then these people lose their jobs, and then they never follow up. They never see, okay, well, what happens to people who lose their jobs in information technology, um, you know, and do they get jobs again? And if you look at the unemployment rate in this computer and mathematics field, it's incredibly low, 2.7%. That means more than 97% of all people in this industry are employed right now. So obviously 
almost everyone who's losing their job in this industry is finding new employment. Is this employment then better than the employment that they had before? And there was an important academic paper that came out that looked at this specific question. A team of economists looked at what happens, what, what is happening employment in this industry, and they found that there is a shift in employment where, where you have foreign workers come in and then the American workers shift to management-level positions where they're actually getting paid more than they were getting paid before. And um, ultimately, their wages rise as a result of that. So, um, you know, there's just no in-depth analysis of this sort going on in these sort of hit pieces, quick, you know, let's share an anecdote, make the foreign workers look like the enemy, and uh, blame big corporations without doing any kind of further research. Well, it couldn't. I mean, the employers could have just hired, you know, recent uh, U.S. grads, right? Except there aren't any. I mean, well, it, it, isn't that the big problem? They could have just they, they didn't need to hire H one B workers. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the um, who is actually graduating with science and technology and engineering and math degrees from U.S. universities, it's overwhelmingly uh, foreign-born students who are graduating with these degrees. And so, really, when you're talking about well. Are they hiring American? I mean, they probably are. A lot of these people mm-hmm. probably are American students in the sense that they went to American schools and they got an American education and then they graduated and they found employment in America. But we look at them as foreign people because they have foreign names and they were born abroad. Uh, but the reality is we train these people at our universities to do these jobs. And, you know, the question we need to ask is, is it better for us to send these people back to the countries they came from after having trained them, after having invested in them, um, and have them compete abroad Against with our own companies. workers? domestically, and I don't think that makes uh, economic sense. I I agree that's that's Uh, economically foolish to educate your competition and then send them away and say, please compete against us, Uh, uh, please don't destroy us in the long run Uh, by doing that. I think it's it's really kind of foolish to to suppose that we're going to educate, give people the best possible education in the world, and then think they're not going to compete against us if they go back home. I'd rather have them here. But, you know, I think one of the – I will tell you one concern that I have with with some aspects of the H&B program involve job shops. I think think this program, if they had really focused on the job shop aspect of this rather than the H1 – H1Bs are a method by which some job shops take – minimally qualified foreign workers and bring them into these H-1B jobs, mostly because big U.S. companies don't want to be in the IT business anymore. Yeah. And that yeah, was so but it, that was not the focus of the piece. Big though. Indian companies, and, the, and this, is, this is a valid concern, but it's more, but the solution is not at all addressed in that program. No, absolutely not, because so, they ignored that as the key component of the program. Yeah, so, so what you're seeing is these, these Indian-owned companies where they bring over uh, H-1B workers, and then they what they do is then they they uh, put them into uh, corporations uh, who hire them at, on a contract basis mm-hmm. to do their IT work, and so they're they're outsourcing their IT department to another company, mm-hmm. and 
really the way that their model operates, it's, it's all premised on the H-1B not being able to leave that employer. Right. So right now, H-1Bs cannot easily leave their initial employer. So the only change that Congress really needs to make to make sure that H-1Bs receive the market wage is to make sure that they have access to the market. Let them leave their jobs easily to go get the market wage somewhere else, and then you don't have this problem where they're trapped with the one employer, and then they're doing the job, and that's really the only job that they can do in America without being deported. Um, If you give H-1Bs their rights, then you resolve a lot of these problems that uh, otherwise would not arise in a true market economy. I mean, right now you have a situation where an employer sponsors an H-1B. If that guy wants to change his job, he has to get another employer to sponsor him and so on and so on. So he's always dependent on the employer. But if that H-1B came with a self-petition, okay, here's my job, here's what we're going to do, and every time you go to work for somebody, you have to get a new LCA. I don't mind the LCA requirement. I think that's not a bad requirement at all. But they, a new LCA gets posted, but you don't need to go back to the immigration service and get approved again. Uh, I think yep. that that takes away some of the problems that these H-1Bs have. The, the other problem I have with these large IT companies, these foreign, typically Indian-owned IT companies, is they take away H-1Bs from my employers. And what I mean by that, yep. I represent a lot of medium yep. to small employers who want to hire an accountant, who want to hire their own IT guy, who want to hire a doctor who want to hire a lawyer, and literally they can't because yeah, an no, IT company comes in and puts in 20, 25, 30, 40,000 H-1B applications so they can get they can get their 25%. I mean, that that is, yeah. in my opinion, inherently unfair in the system. Yeah, and, and, I mean, and if you look at the history of these, these shops that really have, you know, cropped up over the years, they all came about after 2004 mm-hmm. when the H-1B cap came back uh, into place. Quota yep. was dropped dramatically. And so then you, what ends up happening is that the quota gets filled immediately on basically day one, one. Yep. Uh, of the application period. And then you have a lottery system that, that dispenses these visas. And Really, you end up whoever submits the most lot or buys the most raffle tickets uh, wins the lottery, and that's a problem because it's not dispensed based on need or or any kind of economic basis. It's just random, and you know there are two cures to that. One is increase the H-1B cap, and two, figure out how to make it more responsive to market need and not just purely a raffle basis. Well, interestingly enough, Infosys announced over the weekend, at least privately, that they're not going to file H-1Bs for anybody with less than four years of experience after their degree. Now, that's, that's kind of an interesting... They, they said that's in response to the increasing protectionism. Well, there really hasn't been any increase in protectionism. There's a lot of talk about increasing protectionism, but there hasn't been any re- real increased protectionism. Um, but what's interesting about that particular uh, component, Infosys, I think, I think is either number one or number two in the biggest users of the H-1B program, as well as I, I think it's more insourcing than outsourcing uh, that they're doing here at these companies. Um, but they're basically going to have to pay higher wages to all their employees as a result of that if no, no entry-level people are actually getting H-1Bs. 
Yeah, well, you have to understand that the application pool for these visas is huge. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone gets the opportunity to, uh, you know, they might have to increase wages. Uh, You're right. But uh, the application pool for this is so huge that, and people are so desperate to be able to work in the United States um, that, you know, ultimately the power really shifts to the employer when you do that. And if they're trapped in the first job that they get um, for, you know, an extended period of time, then that really becomes a hindrance to, you know, the employee being able to negotiate fairly for wages. So, um, yeah, they might have to increase wages as a result of of that education requirement, but um, we'll see. We'll see if, if that actually transpires or not. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, as Going back to the 60-minute hit piece, which they labeled, you're fired, um, uh, which, you know, playing off the Donald Trump protectionism standard that's come, that's, that seems to be coming around out there, um, it, it said this, it quoted, quote, the person who was the H-1B's original author. I didn't know this author was around in 1952. <laughs> when, when, when H's were actually originally created, they were modified in 1990, but they've been around yeah. for a very long time. And this idea that there is a 65,000 limit. Now, David, you're a relatively young guy. I was around in 1990. Um, and there literally is no, no economic, statistical, or historical basis for picking 65,000 as a limit on H-1Bs. None. Yeah. None. It's totally literally arbitrary. a made-up, totally arbitrary number. We need to take a quick break on our first break here. We'll be back in just a minute with David Beer from Cato on America's uh, Web Radio, the Immigration Hour. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. David, great to be back with you. I was looking again at Bruce Morrison's con- comments as if Bruce Morrison is the, is the dean of the H-1B. This guy's not even a lawyer. Uh, and he said this, this, and this is what I thought was very telling. There are a lot of qualified American workers, but companies will do better financially if they hire the foreign worker. That's just not true. I mean, that, this is the blatant falsehood. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think Bruce Morrison, you know, he's a lobbyist on behalf of uh, really a union of tech workers, and, you know, he's 
trying to advocate for the union's interest um, with that. And, you know, I think that unions have long advocated for protectionist measures. And if you actually look at the numbers of, uh, you know, graduates, whether they're, you know, graduates from U.S. universities or not, um, you're you're going to inevitably conclude that the application pool for these jobs is overwhelmingly uh, foreign-born, and you know you you're not looking at like you said earlier. If you look at the ages of the people, you know the the workforce that is coming about in the in their twenties and thirties is now overwhelmingly foreign-born. And uh, that's not a bad thing for the United States. You know, it's better for us to have these workers in the United States contributing to our economic growth than if they were somewhere else. I think a lot of these folks think that the, the pie is only X big. And if they don't get their piece, if somebody else is taking their piece of the pie, they're out of pie. They, I don't think a lot of them understand. The pie grows when you add people. The pie grows when you add workers. The pie grows when you add knowledge. Um, the, yeah. the irony of the whole H-1B program, of course, is that Trump himself has used the H-1B program a dozen times in the last six years. And, and, and not to mention his own wife was on an H-1B. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's hard to even call Trump a hypocrite because, he, you know, he, he easily just accepts the title and says, you know, I know how the system works, I know how to abuse it, so I'm the one to fix it. The problem is he doesn't know how to fix it, he doesn't know um, the economics here. And, and like you said, I mean, it, it's, it's really easy to get into that focus of if my job is taken you know, or if I'm subject to competition, then I'm going to be better off if I don't have to compete with anyone else. And that's true in a very, very, very narrow sense. So if I can say that no other immigration policy analysts can compete for immigration policy analyst jobs, I'm going to be better off. But if every job in, in the entire economy is like that, where you are you know, every single job is protected from competition, and there's a monopoly everywhere. There's one grocery store. There's one. I mean, that's con- you know, that's well, communist. Well, right? let, let, ask that's, Venezuela that's, how that's, that's worked out. Uh, ask Venezuela how that's worked out for them. You yeah, know? and, and it, 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 it's not better for you in the long term, in the big picture, if every industry in the economy is not competitive because prices go up, you have less production, you have fewer options. And that's exactly what we're doing when we adopt this very narrow, okay, so we're going to protect agricultural workers. Well, if we protect them, we're going to protect construction. And if we protect them, we're going to, and then prices in the entire economy go up, everything gets more expensive, and everyone's worse off as a result. So no one ends up being, you know, protected in the long term if you look at the big picture. Um, and that's kind of what's missing in this entire debate. You know, one of the things that, that have bothered me about the, the some of the, and I will call them abuses in the H-1B program by, like, these large these large foreign employers like Infosys and Tata, is that they've then taken the frustration they've had with H's and they've, they've gone over to the L visa. And now the L-1B visa, which I don't think was ever intended for the use by large uh, multinational computer consulting people to bring computer consultants over is now also under attack by Congress when it, when properly used it is a vital tool for multinational yeah. companies to bring talent back and forth so again the limitations of a dysfunctional program have sweeping impact across 
other disfu- other programs making them dysfunctional. Yeah, and you know it, it's absolutely right. And if you look at since 1990, the number of visas that we're issuing to skilled workers has more or less remained the same, and we actually have fewer visas being issued than in 2001. Um, You know, looking at green cards, H-1Bs, altogether, we're issuing fewer than, you know, we were a decade and a half ago. So, you know, the idea that we should continue to have a policy that's just not reflective of the market, you know, since 1990, when, you know, the Immigration Act was last you know, majorly overhauled, the entire workforce has increased by 50%, and yet we're still issuing the same number of visas that we were issuing back then? It makes no sense. It really does not make sense. It makes no economic uh, from sense. From an economic perspective. Plus, the methods by which we issue those visas make no, make no sense, particularly in the context of a labor certification process, which is nothing more than a fraud on the American worker. I mean, you require U.S. companies to run advertisements that aren't for real jobs in the newspaper asking Americans to apply for those jobs, which they are simply not going to get because the jobs are already filled by a foreign national. You're just testing the labor market. I mean, that is a ridiculous way to run an immigration system. It's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the basically, you know, the system needs to be reformed. Uh, you know, everyone agrees with this. It's sort of the basic principle. Now let's debate how we go about doing that. And, um, you know, I would argue that the simplest way to do this is just simply charge a small, not a small fee, but, you know, a, a percentage fee for hiring foreign workers that's paid directly to the Treasury. They pay more uh, automatically for hiring these people. The U.S. economy benefits, the U.S. government benefits. It's simple. It's straightforward. There's not a bunch of heavy-handed regulation. U.S. workers are preferenced because they wouldn't have to pay a fee in order to hire them. And, you know, H-1Bs aren't stuck with a single employer under that type of system either. And so that's the type of system that I think we should start moving towards is one where, you know, there's a there's a fee payment to... Uh, hire the worker, it, that's the protectionist measure. You don't end up with all these other pointless regulations that are just a facade and really economically harmful anyway because they prevent uh, you know, the economy from being able to access talented people from around the world. Well, y- you and I both know that's not going to happen <laughs> with, yeah. with, with our current Congress uh, because first you have to build the wall. Uh, even though the wall has nothing yeah, to do, yeah. literally nothing to do with yeah. with bringing in talented people to America in a variety of jobs. I mean, one of the reasons you, one of the main reasons why you have illegal immigration, is because you have an un, a completely disuseful, unuseful legal immigration system at the lower skilled, unskilled yeah. level. When you can only bring in maximum. 10,000 people a year, which really is only 33,000, given you have to count their spouses and children, 3,000 unskilled workers a year in the entire U.S. economy. Uh, I mean, the word stupid doesn't even even ring true for that. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think on the one side, I think Democrats have really held high-skilled immigration reform hostage hostage to legalization for people who are here 
illegally. They are afraid that they're going to lose part of the coalition for immigration mm-hmm. reform. Yep. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true either. But these industries are never going to get everything they want, so they're always going to want to participate in any kind of reform. And on the other side, like you said, you know, you have Republicans who want to hold up anything for border security, even if it's totally unrelated uh, topics. So you have both sides holding up the problem. And like you said, really, if you want to secure the border, you know, legal immigration reform is the way to do it. If you look back at the history of the United States, really there's only been two periods in the United States where we controlled illegal immigration. One is the Bracero period, mm-hmm. Bracero guest worker period yep. during the 1950s and 1960s when we were letting in 200 to 500,000 in some years um, uh, Mexican temporary workers to work in agriculture uh, during that period. And, you know, illegal immigration dropped to very minimal levels. And then union interests pressured Congress to get rid of the program, and we replaced that with illegal immigration. Yep. And we had huge numbers of people crossing the border. And the second period was really the current period right now under the H-2A and H-2B guest worker programs, which have recent in recent years started to allow greater numbers of people to come in. Until this year. Um, Until this year. The problem with those programs is that there is no way for them to transition to any year-round employment. So anybody who wants to come for year-round employment who has family here, like you said, they have to rely on less than 10,000 visas, really less than 5,000 visas um, every year to be able to you know, work in the economy legally, and that's not going to cut it for 11 million people. So no, it's, it's not even uh, close. you have I mean, to do something about the supply and demand issue for lesser-skilled workers if you want to control illegal immigration. Well, I think there's also this fallacy out there that if you had uh, an unlimited or a very high number of uh, legal immigrants that could come through the lesser skilled program that you would be flooded with them, and I think that that's just not reality at this point. Because you look yeah. at the, the documented immigration over the last eight years. Now, part of this is due to the recession, but part of it is due to the fact that Mexicans aren't coming illegally anymore. Nobody, and people no longer have nine kids in Mexico. The Mexican yeah. economy is better. The edu- Mexican education system is better. People aren't coming anymore. And this idea that we're going to have a perpetual flow of Mexican farm workers that are illegal, that's just not true. It's, it, demographics yeah. and, and economics don't bear that out. Yeah, I mean, if, you, <coughs> if, 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 if uh, comprehensive immigration reform had passed in 2006, we would have almost no unauthorized immigrants in the United States because we would have legalized them. And since 2006, the undocumented population has actually declined. Mm-hmm. And so the really the, this whole issue of you know, unauthorized immigration being this massive problem is just not borne out uh, by the numbers today. You know, yes, it was a problem in the 90s, but that's really... You know, that's more than two decades ago. So, well, the 90s were a consequence uh, really it's, it's of... focusing on a problem that's already been solved. Well, the 90s were a consequence of a, of a poorly developed amnesty program, which was, by the way, a true amnesty program. Pay $65 and get a green card. Because that program literally never addressed future flow. And who, what idiot didn't think that if you take, give all the farm workers basically a green card, that they're going to keep being farm workers? 
I mean, yeah. come on, let's let's not yeah. kid ourselves. So they literally took them out of the economy. I want to go back to your H-2B point. I just literally have two and three employers we're doing H-2Bs for. Friday the word comes out, no more H-1B, H-2B numbers. And we're in the yeah. middle of the program. We, no, now the, what, are these people, what are they supposed to do? I mean, what are they supposed to do for the workers they desperately need? Nothing. I mean, the reality, there's just nothing out there to help them yeah. go to the next step. Then we're going to take a quick break here. When I come back, I want to talk about, get this in your mind, this, this economic study that came out of the University of Michigan and California, but it's three economists saying H-1Bs lower wages. I need to get your take yeah. on that because I think it's garbage. Yeah. We'll be back in a minute on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611 o visítenos al www.immigration.net. This is Skip Coriel host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Chuck Cook, your host of the Immigration Hour. David, uh, David Beer, Beer with us from the Cato Institute, uh, their premier policy analyst, right below Alex Naraste. <laughs> David, I don't know if you noticed, but my son actually interned with, with, uh, with Alex uh, before he went to law school. Uh, and uh, considers Alex one of his one of his most important mentors in his life, besides his dear old dad. So you have a great, you have a great opportunity to work with Alex. He's just a terrific man and a terrific uh, economist. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking, yeah, Alex is doing great work, and uh, you should definitely check out the uh, recent paper that he just put out on immigrant crime. We're actually going to get to that uh, in the last really segment. That's ways. the last segment, David. Because but first, we got to talk about this this study published from uh, three economists from Michigan and California, focusing yeah. on an eight-year period 15 years ago. So tell me about this. This seems to me like, how could this be a valid study in the 21st century when they looked at the 21st century and looked at 20th century wages? It's, it's apples to oranges. Yeah, I mean, they, they did look at the period of the 1990s and uh, concluded that wages would have been higher for certain occupations if uh, foreign workers uh, were not uh, admitted to the United States. Um, what they didn't do is look at the, you know, the industry in general or that uh, wages in general for, for college graduates or whether it benefited American workers overall. They looked at very narrow, narrow group of individuals um, and, uh, you know, uh, really narrowed in on them. If you look at other research that looked at, took a broader view of the economy and asked the question whether it benefited American workers overall with college degrees, um, that group of economists 
led by Giovanni Perry, concluded that actually foreign workers increased wages for college graduates by seven to eight percentage points right. um, from 1990 to 2010. So they looked over a much larger period of time uh, than this uh, particular study did. So, I mean, for, I always, when I see a study like that, the first thing I always think of who fu- is who funded it, you know, is... <laughs> Uh, because I know I know the anti-immigration folks were all over this, uh, and what was interesting here is they had uh, Obama's chief economist from the Department of Labor, a woman named Jennifer Hunt, who said uh, this paper is the best work we have by a long way in quantifying the negative effects of high-skilled immigration. Wait a second, when did high-skilled immigration become negative? Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. only paper that quantifies. I mean, th- this is this is an outlier. Uh, among not only experience that we see uh, that yeah. I, I mean, especially the 29 years I have with this with this visa, and with these working with these individuals, but with other studies like the one you just pointed out. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So the National Academy of Sciences uh, recently put out a major paper uh, that looked at all of these issues and concluded that really the the gains from high skilled immigration are enormous and. Um, really undisputed by anyone, even the opponents of, you know, the most conservative economists who are most skeptical of immigration agree that high-skill immigration benefits the United States enormously. Um, They provide a fiscal surplus of about $100,000 per person on a a net present value basis. Uh So if you're letting in a million high-skilled immigrants, you're talking about a surplus of, uh, you know, a billion dollars, a hundred billion dollars a year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're really, you're really talking about a huge benefit to the United States. And, um, you know, the idea that somehow now high-skilled immigration is bad is really a myth being promoted by people who are anti-immigration. Well, it comes out of Numbers USA. I mean, the, the, the quote that I, I really hear from Numbers USA, they say, quote, the study found that without H-1B visas, the tech industry wages would have increased by 5.1% and employment of U.S. workers would have increased by 10%. That's not actually a possibility. I mean, it's not a numerical yeah. possibility. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about, uh, when you look at the unemployment in the industry, it's so incredibly low already that it's hard to understand how they could, you know, be portraying this as somehow uh, you'd have all these new American workers entering uh, the workforce. Um, but, uh, you know, that's what the study found. You know, I think that there's probably their justification is that, well, if you had no foreign workers coming in, right, if you take out uh, what is essentially the the largest increase in the workforce for well, there, there would workers. be no if increase in the workforce. Out, some more American workers would probably shift to doing those jobs just because there'd be such an incredible shortage of workers. Um, that doesn't mean that's good for the economy. That's bad for the economy. So if uh, you take out all these foreign workers, for example, one study found that 30 to 40% of all of the productivity growth of the United States came from these high-skill science, technology, engineering, and math uh, workers. If you took them all out of the economy, you're reducing economic growth, economic productivity by 
up to forty percent. I mean, that's I mean that's recession. That's depression level to the economy. Oh no, that would be a nightmare. And the reality is, without the the high skilled and low skilled immigration we've had over the last thirty years, there is essentially no population growth anyway. Didn't know you'd have negative which becomes population a, growth. And, 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 which you know, is what numbers USA wants. Numbers yeah, USA that's their is goal. not anti-immigration group. They're a population population control, control group. group absolutely, they, they focus they, on numbers and not. Uh, you know, the type of, they don't care if we have high-skilled or low-skilled immigrants. They just want fewer people in the United States. They're an environmentalist group that has a long history of advocating for radical environmentalist measures to control population group, population Yeah, growth. they're pro-abortion groups. I mean, it's... it's yeah, it's, their founder is a, is a radical environmentalist who, you know, advocated for, um, you know, forcibly constraining the population, um... You know, so I, I mean, it's it, know, it stuns me that that Republicans that. line up with these people. I don't. I mean, as a, as as somebody who's been a Republican yeah. his whole life, w- what attracts Republicans to people that are pro-abortion, anti-anti-population, anti-family? That's what these people are. And, and yeah, I mean, they really got hoodwinked on that front. And and you know, when I was uh, when I was working on Capitol Hill, you know, they you know they basically this became exposed. A uh, paper was written exposing the fact that uh, many of the founders and board members of these of this group, Numbers USA in particular, were population growth, uh, you know, anti-population growth people, people who are advocating for abortion, forced abortion, uh, China's one-child policy, mm-hmm. and, and so on. And uh, when that became exposed, uh, Numbers USA's cred did dropped considerably, but since the rise of Donald Trump, it's like nothing. You so know, nothing, like nothing right happened again. It was, and and uh, no one seems to care anymore. Well, they they managed uh, to get Tom Cotton on board, didn't they? Actual motivation is well, they managed to get Tom Cotton on board and uh, and David Perdue from Georgia, my senator, to introduce their uh, their half half legal immigration act by doing away yeah, with family it, immigration. It, I mean, it's just it's just yeah, stunning to me. They lose I mean, Jeff Sessions that, and this guy. I mean, it, you know, the whole premise of this thing is that immigration to the United States is at some incredible level. It's 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 just we're letting in so many people, it, you know, beyond uh, you know the historical norms or the uh, norms internationally, and both of that is just completely untrue. I mean, right now the level the the rate of immigration on a per capita basis, so looking controlling for the size of the, the population of the United States is half the average historical rate and less than a quarter of its historical highs in the early uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. And if you look compared to other countries, there are 17 other OECD countries, um, you know, developed nations that have a higher immigration rate than the United States. So it's legal immigration rate. So, I mean, it's just a total myth. Uh, that the United States is letting in too many legal immigrants. Well, they, they certainly love to play that up, and, and as you know, as as the argument moves forward on Capitol Hill on this, it's going to be interesting to see where people line up. Will they line up with these anti-abortion, anti-population people, or will they line up on the side of people who believe that the pie needs to grow if our economy grows? If we don't grow in population, how does the economy grow? How, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I don't. I don't think that's possible. Yeah, yeah. The economy is really a consequence of of the workers and the producers and the people who are in the economy. And so, uh, there was a, a famous uh, French economist in the in the 19th century that 
really discovered the principle, uh, this guy, John Batiste Say, uh, who really discovered and, and articulated the principle that without population, you can't have an economy, you can't have growth. And so the idea that you're going to be wealthier if you have less competition, he just pointed out, well, if that's true, then the most deserted island uh, with, you know, just a few savages living on it would be the most prosperous place you could find. But the most competitive area where the most people are coming and there are most producers and there are, uh, uh, you know, the greatest competition, that's the wealthiest places in the, in the world. And so it's just opposite of what people expect, is that places that have little competition, that have few people, those are dying societies, those are places that are not prosperous, uh, whereas, you know, cities in New York and, and uh, you know, places that are attracting people are very prosperous and, uh, you know, not uh, dying literally. I know. I like to point out to Japan, which has had zero immigration over the last uh, 40 years, uh, and their economy has been stagnant for, for two decades because they have no population growth, none. They have nothing contributing yeah. to their economy other than, you know, people yeah, just getting no, grayer it, and older. It, I mean, you know, it's a great counterexample to the narrative that uh, if we just cut off immigration, we'd be, we'd be prosperous and wages would be rising and we'd have economic growth. Uh, none of those things happened in Japan, and they have had no immigration uh, over the last 20 years. So, you know, whatever's ailing the, the U.S. economy, it's not related to too many people. And I would go even further if you look back. People are talking about all this competition for new jobs. You have all these new people entering the, the workforce. If you look back to the 50s and 60s when wages were growing, you had far more people entering the economy mm-hmm. every year, new workers entering the economy every year, than we do today, even with all the immigration, because back then we had a baby boom mm-hmm. and we had women entering the workforce for the first time, both of which caused the, uh, a massive increase in the labor force during that period of time when we had wages growing. So it's just not true that even looking at American history, that there's some relationship between having labor force growth and lower wages and not having labor force growth. Well, well, David, you're getting into facts now, and we've got to be very careful when we're talking about facts, because those aren't relevant anymore. (laughs) Apparently not, no. Facts Uh, are no longer important. I've I've actually talked to people on Capitol Hill who say, yeah, I I understand what you're saying, but, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. It really, it it doesn't. It's all about politics. Well, it's about politics, and it's about how you feel, how you feel. And, I mean, part of this anti-immigration kickback that we see out there is, is a direct reaction, I see it, from immigrants moving into places they haven't been before. So when you see a, a big anti-immigration movement in Georgia, it's because immigrants are new in Georgia since 1995, 1996. We haven't had an influx. People see, why are there signs in Spanish? Why, why do I have to press one on the telephone to speak English? Why uh, are my kids next to Latino kids in school? You know, I, that makes me uncomfortable. And there's this anti-immigration backlash, which is based on nothing more than perception, but not reality. Yeah. Which is why yeah, I want to so get. We're going to take it a. It is true, uh, and you know, if you look at uh, the areas of the country that voted very heavily for Donald Trump, they were areas that actually have fewer immigrants. Mm-hmm. But if you if you could look at the rate of growth in their immigrant population, those areas had the highest rate 
of immigration growth or immigrant so growth. So it's that reaction. And it's that reaction to yeah, that so new immigrant growth. You a reaction. And we saw this reaction in California. Many people don't remember. Oh, 96. Oh, 94. Pete Wilson. 1994. Yep. Uh, governor of California runs on a very anti-immigrant platform. He says, you know, blames the economic woes mm-hmm. on the immigrants, the fiscal woes of the, the state on the immigrants. And uh, that really flipped the story in California yeah. and made it a Democratic state uh, when the Republican Party there did that. Yeah, that was the last and, time uh, a real Republican won that state. in Arizona. I mean, yep. Arizona, uh, you know, a decade ago went very heavily into the camp of blaming immigrants yep. for the problems that the state was having. And, uh, you know, the reaction was a bunch of uh, anti-immigration bills. That's now waning in that state, yep. and uh, you're seeing it become more competitive uh, between Democrats and Republicans. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel that if this trend continues, where you just continue to blame the foreigner for all the problems, you are going to see more states uh, that were competitive for Republicans or, or actually dominant for Republicans switch to the Democratic column. I think we're going to see that. Let's take our last break. When we come back, I want to talk about Alex's new paper about crime, because, again, this is about perception. People perceive more crime when, in fact, it's not true. We'll be back in just a minute of our last segment on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Our guest from the Cato Institute with us today. David, so uh, Cato put out this great paper uh, by Alex and uh, Michelangelo Landgrave about immigrants and incarceration and crime. Tell us about that paper. Yes, so the headline finding of that paper is that immigrants in general are incarcerated at uh, about a third of the rate of uh, native-born Americans. And um, really the new research that had been confirmed for many different studies over the last, um, you know, 20, 30 years, it's, it's always been consistently held that immigrants in general 
what was new about this research is that it, it tried to narrow down on the unauthorized immigrant population in the United States and ask, well, what about their crime rates? That's really been the focus of Donald Trump's uh, speeches, is unauthorized immigrant crime. Are they different than the immigration population in general? And it, it turns out that they are about half as likely as, uh, as native-born Americans in general to be incarcerated, so much less likely uh, to commit the type of serious crime that puts you in, in, uh, in, you know, in jail or in, in prison. Um, and if you control for immigration offenses, you know, the, the offenses that are just a consequence of them being here illegally right. um, or, you know, being detained as a result of being here illegally, then they pretty much have the exact same level of incarceration as legal immigrants do, which is a really surprising result because legal immigrants are much more likely to be high-skilled mm-hmm. and high, you know, high levels of education is a pretty good indicator that you're going to have a lower crime rate. And so really what's, what's remarkable about this research and very um, uh, fascinating, uh, you know, to, is to inquire exactly why that is. Why are unauthorized immigrants so much less likely than native-born Americans to commit crimes and pretty much the same as the entire legal immigrant population, despite being much lower skilled? Um, that is uh, a pretty fascinating finding, and, and I think uh, will be the subject of future research. So, so it's clearly not education, then, that determines uh, criminality among immigrants. It must be something else. And I, th- I, th- I, th- I thought this was a really important point that was made here in the press release about this, um, that they're much more likely to be married, much yeah. more likely to have kids. So they have, yeah, they so have family, and family is a, a, a powerful indicator a close family, a nuclear family, of not committing crime. Yeah, if you look at the other social, you know, social indicators of, uh, you know, of immigrants, if you look at their their rate of employment, and if you look at their rate of of marriage and uh, having children, they have much higher rates of of these things, these positive indicators than uh, native-born Americans do, especially low-skilled native-born Americans. And if you focus on men in particular, the difference is even greater because uh, uh, unauthorized immigrant men, almost 90% of them work compared to native-born low-skilled men. You're talking about about 50%. So a, a 40 percentage point difference between uh, high school dropout men and the, the unauthorized immigrant population, that's why you're really seeing a major difference in, in social outcomes, at, you know, whether it's in terms of finding someone who is willing to marry them. Uh, you know, finding a job is a very important part of, of uh, you know, maintaining a family and also avoiding, uh, you know, other types of social, social deviant behavior like criminality. I mean, I think this is a powerful study, yet I did not see this on 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, you know, crime sells, murder sells, uh, not committing murder doesn't sell. Doesn't sell? Destroy, you know, allegations of job loss sell, but this doesn't. the press. You know, it, which is really sad because I think this is this is a much more important study, particularly in light of Trump's movements towards his, what does he call it, voice? 
where he's got a website set up where you can whine about immigrant crime or they're going to list everybody, every immigrant who commits a crime in America. I mean, the kind of the scarlet letter, regardless of what that yeah. crime is. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, and I, again, I haven't read the whole the whole study that Alex came out with here, but my imagine, yeah. I imagine that if you took out um, things like DUIs, the, the rate would drop even further uh, on crimes. Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't have it broken out by the type of crime, um, but uh, you know. Really, the reality is that, you know, this finding isn't surprising because unauthorized immigrants make up such a large portion of the increase in the immigrant population in the 1990s. And during the 1990s, the violent crime and property crime rate was dropping dramatically. And when you focus in on the areas where unauthorized immigrants went, the you, you, you take the big picture and you mm-hmm. control for the size of the immigrant population over time, and the areas in which the unauthorized immigrants went actually saw steeper declines in the crime rate than other areas of the country did, which indicates that they're actually having positive spillover effects, well, that they're actually lowering the crime more than you would expect. And, um, you know, that's, that's really a consequence of the fact that they are building their, up their communities. They're being productive members of their communities and not the social parasites that, you know, it's often per- well, portrayed. I guess this means that there are no undocumented immigrants in the south side of Chicago. <laughs> uh, not enough of them. Not, not apparently enough. I mean, think about that, because I'm actually from New York, and I grew up in the New York of the 1960s and 1970s, which was a, a moderately dangerous place to be. Uh, you go to New York today, and of course it's full of immigrants. I mean, the, Im- New York, more than any other city in, in the United States, has been the recipient as a city of immigrants, uh, of both documented and undocumented. And as a result, the city itself not only is more robust economically, but it's much safer than it's ever been. And yeah. it's just, it's yeah, just no, remarkable it's, it's, to me that, that politicians, yeah. either they won't wrap their minds around this, or they simply just ignore it uh, in favor of the angry people who call their office because they've got to dial one on their phone to speak English. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and I think what you're what you're kind of seeing is you're seeing people in rural areas of the country who don't know what's going on in the cities, and they see on the news, you know, these stories about immigrant criminals, and they see on the news stories of of, uh, you know, uh, of murder and, and rape and, and these things, and, and they make assumptions about what's actually happening without knowing what the trends are. You know, are there more murders now than there were before? And in almost in every major U.S. city, the violent crime rate is far below its level in the 1980s, oh. including Chicago. Yeah. Even though Chicago is experiencing a, a you know a crime wave right now, uh, if you look in general, most U.S. cities are much safer than they were um, 10 years ago, 20 years. Well, ago. even look at Atlanta, where we are. I mean, you can walk around Atlanta. Even even 15 years ago, you'd hesitate to go to a Braves game or to go downtown. That's just not the case anymore. Uh, and. Uh, it, you know, part of that is is, is a little bit a more aged population. Part of it is immigrant growth, and part of it is a better economy, a better society that we currently live in. Um, and to ignore, you know, I guess, what bothers me, David, is that Congress refuses to recognize the immig- the immigration context of this and how important immigration is to lifting everybody's ship 
and making us all better as we move forward. Uh, and that immigration never, in my opinion, harms a society. Um, and this idea that we need to shut off immigration from certain countries because of what you fear might happen, which is not based on any fact whatsoever, uh, only hurts us in the long run. Yeah, it's, it's really a, it's a sad thing where it's the precautionary principle here is that, well, if anyone ever commits a crime and they're an immigrant, then that makes our society worse off. Mm -hmm. uh, but they ignore the fact that all of these benefits from immigrants working more and paying taxes and contributing to the economy of the United States actually does make the country safer uh, by uh, improving their communities, by increasing the amount of wealth in the society. We're, allowed, we're, we're able to devote more resources to problems like crime. And uh, that's kind of what's missing in this discussion. You, you know what I would love to see is a counter website to the tr to the ICE the now ICE website to report being victims of immigrant crime. It's people that can report incidents of immigrants that have helped them, uh, and how yeah. immigrants have changed their lives, and how immigrants have yeah. impacted them. Where is that web? That's that's a good website Cato should put together. How yeah. immigrants have helped me. Uh, I think you'd yeah. have a much longer list of people on there than you will on Trump's whiny website uh, about victims, supposedly. Yeah, I, I actually completely agree with that uh, commentary. And I think that if you did have such a website, it would probably receive a lot fewer hits than the, the one uh, that Donald Trump is putting <laughs> together. But, you know, I just compiled a few examples in an article I wrote last year about immigrants who had saved people's lives or who had testified, provided critical testimony against murderer. Um, there were two uh, uh, Swedish students who were cycling home. Oh, I remember that. They, they broke up the rape. Absolutely. On campus. Sexual assault and not only stopped it, but then it apprehended the guy to the, the cops the came. Rapist. Yeah, yeah, at Stanford University. And, uh, well, you know, David, on, on that note, though, I need to end the show because David's given okay. me the evil eye. This has been a great hour. We're going to have you back again uh, next few months to talk Excellent. about this. This, Thanks, this is such vital, important stuff for our listeners to understand that immigration is good for America. This is your host, Chuck Cook, on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Until next week, we look forward to hearing from you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.